Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scors and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. The title of this episode is Can Biden Rope-A-Dope His Way Out of the Debt Ceiling Crisis? And for those who don't know the rope-a-dope metaphor that is based on a very famous, probably the most famous boxing match of all history, which is the Ali Foreman fight in Zaire in 1974. It's called the Rumble in the Jungle. In that fight, Ali was actually the underdog. He was not the heavyweight champion at that point. Um, Foreman was. And there were actually four to one odds against Ali. And those of you who think of Ali as the greatest fighter of all time, think of him being under, you know, four to one underdog. Well, after this fight, that's why he became the greatest fighter of all time. Um, and Foreman was undefeated at this time. And he had he had just been destroying people, right? People who had beaten Ali, Foreman was treating like like, you know, flies on his you know, on his arm, just swatting them away. I mean, he was just this dominant, hulking destroyer. And so uh, going into it, again, everyone thought Ali was going to get beat. But what Ali did, hence the rope-a-dope, is he leaned back on the ropes a lot and kind of got into a defensive posture. And Foreman kind of was super aggressive and uh, kind of tired himself out with these largely ineffective body blows because kind of Ali was in this crouch and, uh, and then as he got tired, Ali, Ali was kind of peppering him through the fight. But in an eighth round, Ali sensed his opportunity and knocked him out. And, and even the knockout is just one of the most incredible knockouts of all time. I don't want to give too much away if you haven't seen it. Um, I used to be a big fan of boxing, and I'm not anymore because of the brutality. I've just become a lot more of a pacifist, and I just don't like violence of any sort. But Ali will always remain my favorite. And uh, he's, you know, and again, just also his civil rights stuff, his position against the Vietnam War. You just, if you don't know a lot about Ali, I would really recommend looking into him because they don't make sports icons like him anymore. He's in a completely class of his own. And it actually makes a lot of the people these days look pretty pathetic, um, you know, with a few exceptions. There's a documentary called When We Were Kings. It won the Academy Award. It's about this boxing match because the whole thing was a cultural phenomena. They had James Brown and all these entertainers come out and there was huge drama. And again, it was in Zaire, which was a, a crazy dictatorship at this time and all the weird shit around that and all the celebrities. And it was supposedly, it was one of the biggest, the first kind of pay-per-view when you would actually pay a fee to watch it on TV, and they think about a billion people watched it in back in 1974, you know, and so, you know, knowing where technology was back then, it's just incredible. It was probably the biggest cultural event of the century, and so if you haven't seen the fight, you can check it out on YouTube, the documentary, When We, when we Were Kings, highly recommend. Last point I'll say in this, because I'm obviously kind of straying off topic here, 
is when I was young, I actually got to meet Ali. I got his autograph in this crazy moment. I was very, very young, and I remember going through this crowd and looking up, and there was Muhammad Ali. So I don't know. I, I It, it kind of gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Um, but anyway, the metaphor here is what's important, right, which is that, you know, Ali was the great underdog, but he used this really incredible kind of strategy that no one had ever done before to kind of vanquish this, you know, this foe, right? And, you know, it, maybe it's not perfect for Biden's situation, because again, Biden is the president of the United States. He is technically the most powerful person in the country, but he's facing a really evil foe in the Republican Party that is hanging over him something that could end his presidency and usher in fascism. And before I kind of get into all the details of this, I just want to make a few comments about how, you know, deeply unserious and ignorant American society is. I like to joke America is a very stupid, ignorant society with a lot of smart people in it, right? And I think that's the fact, right? Right now, as we are careening towards this kind of default on the U.S. debt, the general public and the legacy media have basically turned this debt ceiling hostage into kind of another horse race topic. You know, is, is Biden going to negotiate? What are they doing? As it goes into the weekend, pause on the negotiations. Who's up? Who's down? And it's just fucking pathetic. It's a disgrace. The way the media is treating this is a fucking disgrace. This is perhaps the most consequential moment of Biden's presidency. It is going to have huge, huge repercussions for the future history of this nation. And I'll get into that more in a minute, right? And yet, you know, and with almost everything in American politics, if you get to the facts, if you drop the bullshit, you drop the horse race politics, you drop the posturing, right? There are clear right and wrong sides here and clear facts that are just being completely obfuscated by the media. Because again, they don't make money on clarity and facts. They make money on drama and sensationalism. And he said, she said, right? But let me tell you some of the facts. The Democrats, the Democratic Party have never, ever held the country hostage by threatening a, a Republican president to not pass the debt ceiling in order to get what they want. Never. Not once. Not every now and then. Never. And they have said they, they never will. So the Democratic Party has said, we will never use the debt ceiling, which is a key core responsibility that the U.S. will never default on its debts. We will never use that to try to you know, take the country hostage to get things that we could not get through regular order. This is domestic terrorism. The Republican Party's position, and again, I'm stating facts here. The Republican Party's position is we will blow up the U.S. economy. We will force the country to default on its debt obligations if our far-right extremists don't get what they want. That is domestic terrorism. It's evil and despicable, but most of the media just treating it like normal, like it's no big deal. It's not. It's not normal. Even the concept of the debt ceiling is not normal and completely ridiculous. 
and in none of the major powerful advanced countries does anything like this exist. Right? This notion that we have to keep passing laws to say we're going to pay our debts. Japan, Germany, France, UK, they don't have a law. When they go into debt, they have to pay the debts. There's not a law to say, oh, keep raising the debt ceiling every time we go more into debt. It's just whatever the debt is, you have to pay it. Another fact, the Democrats passed a clean debt ceiling bill three times under President Trump. Okay, three times. Never made a noise. You never even heard about it because it was just regular order. Of course, we're going to raise the debt ceiling. We're in COVID. Costs are going up. We have the, 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 the other costs. They know from, from the Bush years, we got to pay our bills. We never default on our debt. We want to, you know, Democrats say, hey, we want to cut some things. We want to raise taxes. But they never say we're going to threaten to default on the debt to get that. They do it through regular order. And they don't always get what they want. I'm very frustrated with the fact that Democrats haven't gotten more. But they're not, I don't, I'm not urging them to threaten to blow up the U.S. economy to get it. And remember also, the debt ceiling is all about past spending, right? It's things that we've already done. It's not about future spending. That's the budget. So this is, again, important. And again, the media has done a horrible job of this. There are two separate things. The debt ceiling is paying our past obligations. The budget negotiations are about future spending. And by the way, the the Republicans control the House of Representatives. They have a seat at the table for future spending. And if they want to cut things, that's a real legitimate negotiation. So notice, I'm not saying the Republicans don't have a seat at the table. They do. Even though they won the House mostly through gerrymandering and voter suppression, they won. I acknowledge that. And they have a seat at the table on the budget negotiations. They should not be threatening to default on the U.S. debt. And finally, adding insult to injury, most overwhelming amount of the $31 trillion in U.S. debt is from Republican policies, from the Bush and Trump tax cuts and the Afghan and Iraq wars. Those costs are most of the $31 trillion. Another big piece of that is COVID. Now, that was done under Trump. But I'm not bashing Trump. The Democrats passed it also. And we needed trillions of dollars of spending to, to deal with COVID. So again, most of this $31 trillion is from fucking Republican policies. So think about the, 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 think about the insanity. Republicans create a huge debt. And then when a Democrat is president, they say, we're going to threaten to blow up the economy if you don't do what we want to cut spending, even though it was our spending that got us the debt. So again, if there was even a halfway decent media, the headlines would be Republican hostage takers trying to you know, threaten the, the U.S. economy based on their past fiscal irresponsibility. That would be all we're talking about because that's the fact. Now, again, Republicans have never, ever been serious about fiscal responsibility. And the fact that somehow they have just keep repeating this absolute bullshit lie and it's unchallenged is a disgrace. If you go out and go, which is the more fiscally responsible party? And you just poll Americans, sadly, more are going to say Republicans and Democrats, even though the facts are the exact opposite. And I'll give the Republicans credit for being good liars and good evil messengers. 
but also a huge F to the media to not get this fucking basic facts through, right? Now, what happens if we do end up defaulting, right? First of all, it will not only have huge economic implications, but political as well. And this is important. Fascism, the history of fascism shows that it thrives under economic calamity and uncertainty. When people are losing their livelihoods, they feel insecure, they're scared, when there's a lot of uncertainty about the future, that's when fascists come to power. And it is likely, I'd say almost guaranteed, that if there is a debt default that leads to economic calamity in the U.S., Trump is going to win the 2024 election. Because people will blame the Democrats for a bad economy. Again, because the media has done such a shitty job. No one's going to say, oh, well, it was the Republican hostage takers. They're just going to say, bad economy, Democrats were in charge, Biden was president. You know, let's give it to Trump. He, he, it, was, it was a better economy under him. And by the way, the GOP knows this. And therefore, their incentive, yet again, is to destroy. It is a completely asymmetric situation. The Republicans don't actually want to get what, you know, to get a deal. They want to tank the U.S. economy to then blame the Democrats and get fucking Trump in again next year. So if Biden doesn't pull off this rope-a-dope, if he doesn't pull off this incredible feat, not only will the economy crash, but we could be very much, I would say likely, on the verge of a second Trump term and the beginning of real hardcore fascism in America. This is not a fucking drill. But again, almost no one is taking this seriously in the media. And I've just stopped reading stories in the media about it because it's so despicable. right? We're literally talking about economic calamity in the beginning of fascism. And it's like, again, it's like some bullshit horse race politics. So after the break, I'm going to talk about how Biden already rope-a-dope the GOP once this term and the chances of him pulling it off yet again. Okay, so let me talk about the first time that Biden rope-a-dope the Republicans. And this was the Inflation Reduction Act. So harken back, you know, to um, summer 2022 here, when it looked like a climate bill was all but dead. You know, Manchin and to some extent Kirsten Cinema had tanked the Build Back Better bill. The Democrats were in disarray. Again, that was the quotes. And there was some voting going on over this Chips and Science Act, which was to kind of reshore chip manufacturing in the U.S. through a combination of kind of policies and economic incentives to bring manufacturing back here to the U.S. for, for semiconductors. And right before that vote, Biden said, you know what? Uh, climate bill's dead. Build back's debtor's dead. I killed it. And that helped get a lot of Republicans on board because they were kind of gleeful. They were like, we kind of want to do this semiconductor chips act because it's kind of a tough on China bill and we can kind of posture there. It's lavishing money on big business in America, which Republicans love to do. And the climate bill's dead. So we're going to play, you know, we'll, we'll go bipartisan here. 
And so they did it. And, you know, for all the valid critiques of the Chips and Science Act, I think there's actually some decent stuff in there. Again, I think, you know, given the security concerns of, of Taiwan and China, you know, getting a lot of these critical components in U.S. shore is probably not a bad idea. Um, so that passed. And then almost right away, Manchin said he had reached a deal with Schumer to pass a reduced climate bill, kind of a reduced Build Back Better bill, now renamed the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And the Republicans, if you know, again, most people don't remember, people didn't follow it then or have a short attention span. The Republicans were apoplectic. They felt completely duped. Now, again, this is normal politics. They didn't have to vote for the Chips and Science Act, you know, there's nothing, you know, but they felt like, wait up, you told us you weren't doing the climate. That's what got me on that one. You, you know, you, and again, these again, these are people who are the most bad faith actors who steal Supreme Court justices, who support coup plotters, and then you know they're up in arms because Manchin rope-a-doped them, and Biden rope-a-doped them, and Schumer rope-a-doped them. And then, you know, within a couple weeks. The Democrats, through the reconciliation process with not a single Republican vote in either chamber, passed the biggest climate legislation in U.S. history. And the GOP at that moment realized they had been completely outmaneuvered. It was a thing of beauty. And again, being a Democrat and seeing the, the, the Republicans in their evil you know, machinations fuck over the Democrats and the American people time and time again... Again, the biggest ones stealing Supreme Court justices to see them get outmaneuvered and see them get bitch slapped and lose was such a fucking thing of beauty. It was brilliant. And, and the fact that it was for something so important, the biggest climate legislation in world history, that was just amazing. And, you know, it still bothers me how little credit Biden gets for this. And it's just more evidence of the unseriousness of American society. Right, so that was a rope-a-dope, right? They kind of faked them out. They said, oh, we're not doing it. They came across, they got the Chips and Science Act over the finish line, then right away they come back with this even bigger bill, more important bill, get that passed, and have this huge, huge victory. So that was a great rope-a-dope. But this one is going to be much more difficult. So here's the current situation as of my recording this podcast on May 22nd. Treasury Secretary Yellen has said that as soon as June 1st, the Treasury will run out of money unless the debt ceiling is raised, causing the U.S. to be unable to pay all of its debts and bills. This means if this happens, the U.S. would have to start prioritizing what to pay for and what not, since we would still have money coming in, right? The U.S., it's not like the, you know no money would come in. We have tax receipts and fees and stuff coming into the U.S. Treasury all throughout the year, it just wouldn't be enough to cover everything, right? And so first off, what would happen? We know that interest rates would rise dramatically. And why is that, right? Interest rates are the, the, you know, the price the U.S. government pays for people to loan them money. If all of a sudden the U.S. is not as good and reliable a, you know, a creditor because we're defaulting on some of our debts, people are going to say, you got to give me more money to lend you money because you're riskier. And so this means that treasury bond interest rates are going to go up. This means the bond market's going to crash. This means all credit costs for small businesses, credit cards, mortgages are going to go up a lot, right? Ironically, it would also mean that U.S. debt payments would go up, right? Right now, we have $31 trillion in debt. Most of it is very low interest debt because it was issued at a time of very low interest rates. 
But as we issue more debt, it would go up because of interest rates going up. So the irony is it would actually make our debt situation much, much worse because we would be paying much higher interest rate on our own debt. And this would make the overall U.S. fiscal policy and situation much worse. It would make it harder for us to pay off our debts. And it would make it harder for us to ever increase spending on important social programs or even military programs if for some reason, you know, there was another, you know, major military conflict, right? In addition, prioritizing what debts to pay would be incredibly complex, right? The U.S. pays, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different people and organizations and, and you know, creditors all the time. And in terms of individuals, hundreds of millions. And it would be politically difficult to determine who gets paid, right? That, that decision would have to be made. We can't pay everyone who's at the top of the list. Is it seniors with Social Security checks? Is it military contractors? Is it veterans? And not everybody's going to be able to get paid. And the people who don't are going to be fucking pissed. And they're going to flip out and make a huge political stink of it, right? This would do huge damage, not only to the economy, but to America's global, global leadership, since no advanced country has defaulted on their debt in nearly a century. I mean, you've had some in South America, you know, you had Argentina, Chile, you obviously have developing countries to default on their debt. You've been having a major Western power default on its debt in nearly like a century. So this is very, very big stuff and very bad. There is no fucking upside to this. This is bad. And look, although Biden said he wouldn't negotiate over the debt ceiling, now he's negotiating, right? This is the reality, right? It's supposedly what he's saying to kind of make this semantically, you know, accurate. He's saying, I'm not negotiating on the debt ceiling. I'm negotiating over the budget. Remember, there's two separate things, the debt ceiling and the actual next year's budget. He's saying, I'm just negotiating over the budget. Once we get that worked out, they'll pass the clean debt ceiling. And that's why I'm actually technically not um, negotiating over the debt ceiling. But look, that's basically semantics. He's negotiating over the debt ceiling. I just have to admit that. And I'm kind of upset that he is, but I'll get to that in a moment. So he's negotiating with extremists who want to blow up the economy or it certainly are serious about doing it. And look, other people have pointed this out. But Kevin McCartney, you know, the, the majority leader, Speaker of the House, has no fucking power, right? He's, he's in name only. It's not even clear if any deal was struck between him and Biden that Kevin could go get the votes. I mean, think of how pitiful this is. Imagine they have these deep negotiations and finally they come to something. And Biden says, we worked it out. And then Kevin goes back and they go, no, fuck you. We don't like the deal, right? So this is like, I don't see how this works. And look, we're running out of time. We're down to less than two weeks. So what the heck is Biden doing? The first thing is, nobody knows. Nobody knows. This is probably the most 3D chess secretive strategy of our lifetimes, perhaps besides the Bin Laden raid, right? Biden cannot show his hand since he needs leverage and he needs everyone to keep guessing that they don't know ultimately what he's going to do. Because if he says, hey, I'll invoke the 14th Amendment, then the Republicans are just going to say, "All right, go, go for it. Fuck it. We're not even going to. We're not even going to pretend that there's any chance that we'll pass it. Go for it." So it's impossible to know how much of what Biden is saying is true, or simply trying to set the GOP up or set expectations. And I just don't know. 
I mean, right now, what I do know is there's a lot of smart people at the very top, from Biden and his top advisors and Janet Yellen, you know, having meetings every day, I'm sure, figuring out the strategy here. Does he really think he can negotiate with these nut job right wing terrorists? I doubt it. I think he's trying to show that he may he's making an effort. And that when the talks ultimately collapse, he can invoke either the 14th Amendment, which says the U.S. cannot default on its debt, or he'll direct the Treasury to do extraordinary measures that may avoid default in a kind of technical sense by issuing special types of bonds. I don't want to get into all this. There's a whole list of things people have talked about, trillion-dollar platinum coin, etc. Look, none of this has ever been done in U.S. history, so it's anyone's guess what the end result would be. But what I'm trying to get across here in this episode is this is like the most fucking consequential thing that we're going through in this first term of Biden's administration and is going to have huge economic and political repercussions for years, perhaps decades. Even in the best case scenario where Biden prevents default, the uncertainty and shock of whatever he does will likely increase interest rates for a time and lead to some financial market turmoil. Look, it's a year and a half from the next election, so it might not be too bad. The timing in some way is okay that if if we have six months, 12 months of some rocky economic waters, but we avoid the worst and things are improving when November 2024 comes around, I think we'll be in okay shape. And more importantly, If Biden can do something that just takes the debt ceiling off the table completely and says this is null and void, we're not fucking doing this anymore, that will be a huge win. Because this is the reality. The GOP will continue to use economic terrorism as long as it's rewarded. They will keep coming back to the terrorism trough every fucking time. And I think Biden knows this. And I think he knows he's going to have to take drastic measures. Because again, even if he... They get something through and give some concessions. They're going to come back again and do it again next year. And that's going to be a lot closer to the election, which makes the stakes even more dramatic, which gives them even more leverage. So look, if he pulls off this second rope-a-dope in his first term, I think it puts him absolutely in the, you know, historic president category. He, in a lot of ways, already is because of the climate bill. But this is this is the next test case. So here's hoping he can he can rope-a-dope the Republicans for the second time because the likely alternative is the end of democracy in the U.S. I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but I really think that's the truth. So I'll come back with the antidote right after the break. What the rhymes keep feeling, respect's been given, how's your living? Now I can't protect, I paid off defect. Check the record and record, inattentional wreck. Played off as some intellect, made the call, took the fall, broke the laws. Not my fault that they fall off. Known as fair square throughout my years. So I growl at the living town. Black to the bone, my home is your home. But welcome to the Terror Dome. Okay, so the antidote today is incredibly short, maybe the shortest ever. Don't forget who is at fault in this debt ceiling standoff. Don't let anyone play false equivalency bullshit with you. The GOP is at fault, end of story. They are economic terrorists, and they are trying to risk the economic future of the United States to get their right-wing extremist agenda, and if it fails, to crash the economy to usher in a second Trump administration 
and fascism. This is the fact. This is the reality. Don't let anyone bullshit you. These are the stakes. So with that, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. And with that, everybody, despite the seriousness of what's going on here, hopefully I'll have some good news to report in a couple weeks uh, as Biden rope-a-dopes these fools and we get to uh, the other side of these troubled waters. So I hope you uh, are you know, enjoying the, the spring and stay safe. Be well. 